You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dan said, three days ago, I had driven out to New River City to try to collect on a job we did at a new development. The boss wasn't in. The secretary looked kind of cute, and pretty soon we were on the boss's couch together. It was easy, real easy. I'm not bragging. I'm telling you this for a reason. She got up to go into the bathroom to freshen up, took her purse, and took her time. I wandered over to the desk where she had USA Today. They have a page with news from every state. I always check Oklahoma. It said the graves of three veterans of Iraq had been dug up. Two of the bodies were left alone, but the third was missing. The secretary had to be pretty fresh by then, but she was getting fresher still. I stood by the door and heard a few words, and then she hung up her phone. They'd gotten to her. They had contacted her before I got there and were paying her to keep me there. These guys have resources. I don't think there's a better place than where we are now. Father and son, with fish, beer, cigars, sunshine and water, a borrowed bout and borrowed time, and Les McCall conveniently had a heart attack, and Shaw too. I spent the time listening unless he asked and prodded for war stories. My reluctance must have come off as youthful sullenness, but I was struggling to isolate each of my resentments and squash them. I wanted to make sure I had Dan right. Filling in that picture had been a lifetime quest, with all the gathered evidence and clues snatched from fleeting moments together, or observations of Dan with his women, his cronies, his victims. Now it was uninterrupted access, and I couldn't stop staring into the fire, even though I knew I should run. I even watched him sleep. He was still a handsome man, rugged and strong. I tried to guess how old he was, but it was just a guess, and the thought of asking made me laugh out loud. Questions weren't paths to the truth or even to facts. They were cues to start the entertainment or to change the channel and be captivated for a few more moments. No story ever came off as a rerun. Every moment was fresh. His smile would form and his eyes twinkle a bit and he'd ease in. I was fishing on the Salmon River up in Oregon when a bear, or once at a party in New York, a woman I'd never met before, very beautiful, came up and asked me to walk her home. Or they deputized me once in Santa Fe to help them catch a bank robber. David Rich is a screenwriter whose credits include episodes of MacGyver and Stargate SG-1 and the feature film Renegades. His first novel is Caravan of Thieves. Thank you for joining me, David. Thanks for having me, Rick. David, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about your life as a writer. Talk about getting into writing TV and movies how did you do that? Because it seems a, a kind of a backwards progression to go from that to novels. I was a graduate student and uh, discovered that I wasn't going to be a professor. And I uh, had a lot of interest in telling stories. And I had an idea for a story that I thought I could write as a novel. But I was a 23-year-old graduate student, and I couldn't write a novel. So I decided, since I'd seen a million movies and it was a detective story, I'd write it as a film script. It took me a while, but eventually I wrote it and moved out to Hollywood. I liked writing scripts. I liked writing screenplays, and I wrote more. It took about a year 
out there until I got my first job. I was working as a bartender, of course. The producers urged me not to quit my job as a bartender. But they employed me a lot, and uh, one of them was an older fellow who had been head of physical production at Paramount under Bob Evans. So he was in charge of the studio when they made Catch-22 and Love Story and Godfather and many other pictures. And he knew everything about movie making. So it was a terrific lesson, though none of the pictures got made. Anyway, from there, I kept writing scripts. I had a job for a while on the other side of the desk as a development person, which was also great education. I worked for a man named George England, who also knew all about the movie business. He'd grown up in it. It's just keep learning. Eventually, he hired me to, uh, to come over and be a writer and wrote a script for Marlon Brando, which was a real highlight for me. And that never got made. I guess my first credit was a MacGyver. I had submitted a cop script, a feature. And unbeknownst to me, the guy who ran the show was a former cop. And he was reading parts of it out to his writing staff. He liked it. So they had me in. I pitched them a few stories. That must have been a hoot to write for MacGyver. <laughs> it, it almost brought me to tears. Um, it was very interesting, and they were, they were very nice to me. Uh, but I didn't understand the difference between TV and movies in terms of their process. What was that I, difference? They wanted the cliché, but all of it. In other words, you couldn't give them... You see TV, and, and let's face it, it's not deep stuff usually. And, and you couldn't be cynical about what you were giving them. They take this very seriously, as they should. And this man, his name was Steve Downing, was a very smart man. And he would catch you out if you weren't giving him your best. But they didn't want anything new or different because the audience turns on to see the same old stuff every week. It's why they turn on the TV. But you had to give them the same old stuff elaborately, all the pieces of it. Took me a little while to understand that. Talk about being a storyteller in that kind of environment where the stories get kind of munged. I, I mean, it, it's it, you throw it out there and it, it it's like 10 Dr. Frankensteins uh, walk up to it and say, hmm, there's a limb I would like to take off and put on a flipper instead. <laughs> well said. It's interesting. With television, I never felt that was a problem. Uh, the few episodes I did, it's their show. And I came in as a freelancer. And they have stars who are doing this every week. And if someone says to you on the show, this is how Rick would say it then that's how Rick would say it. And, and David Rich can't come in and say, no, 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 Rick ought to change the way he says it. That's silliness. But if you write a play or a screenplay, you've written that, that's yours, and that's how the character should, should speak. So uh, I didn't have a problem. That first MacGyver, I pitched them a story, and, and they looked at it and they said, we like the story, but it cannot take place in the United States. 
So I came back the next week and told it to them, and it was set in Chile. And they said, terrific, we love it. And I walked outside with the guy who was the line producer, again, head of physical production, who said, you know, we're moving the show to Vancouver, so don't give me too many Latinos. <laughs> this sounds really like a kind of a fun challenge because uh, it certainly eliminates the blank page problem. You have so many constrictions that you really have to write to fit the format. Very much, very much. TV, you must write to fit the formula. They don't want it any other way. And the people who can do it quickly and, and in that formula are very valuable. They had a man on staff who was an old-timer who they said was famous. for He could write a full, shootable script in four days. And the screenplays are a puzzle as well. They're, you, know, you can't hand in a 180-page screenplay if you want to be paid. <laughs> I guess so. not. Now, uh, you came from this environment and then found yourself uh, confronting the blank page. Uh, Caravan of Thieves is a really fascinating novel, and it has lots of really interesting background. You have a great father-son relationship. And um, so I'd like you to talk about uh, developing your main character, Raleigh Martin. He's something of an enigma, even to himself. And I'm wondering if he introduced himself to you as that enigma or if you had already unpacked it before you started writing. Well, I'd say the, uh, the former, he introduced himself to me. I had worked for a while on, on I was uh, very interested in the way parents and children have this shadow play between them of hiding from each other and uh, the way they try to figure each other out. And uh, I, I had shown a few years ago one of my daughters uh, my college ID and she looked at it and she looked at me and then she goes, oh, now I get it. And, and I thought, well, what does she get? What have I been hiding? And it, I thought I was an open book. And then I realized, no, I'm not at all. I'm hiding a lot of stuff. And uh, you know, besides the fact that you know, when, once you have children, in, in a funny way, your children become a, not an enemy, but they're, they're someone else that you can't reveal yourself to. You take your, your son to the restaurant there's no way you can say what you'd like to do to the waitress. Your son is somebody you're hiding from. And I wanted to explore that. And I thought, well, I'll find a, if there's a, 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 fa a guy who grew up and his father was a con artist, someone who is expert at hiding who he is and what his intentions are, then that son might have some interesting things going on. Part of the backstory here that I thought was so fascinating was uh, the, the Iraq War. And, and I think what you do is you talk about, point out to us that there's a whole subterranean economy going on in, in Iraq and, and in Afghanistan where there's just money flowing out of spigots faster than we our minds can even imagine. And we have no clue where it goes. And that's such an interesting place to set it. It is. It fascinated me from the first day I heard about it, about, well, finding Saddam Hussein's money was fascinating to me. And also the stories of us shipping over plane loads, cargo plane loads of dollars to spread them around. I mean, who came up with this plan? And, and uh, 
Of course, that only breeds corruption. It's still going on in Afghanistan. It's ridiculous to think that you could have all that cash flowing around and all these people, military people and civilian employees who aren't going to try and take advantage of it. Now, one of the things I think you do is you create for us a great scene of some of the kind of how this crime tech in, in Iraq worked. And I really love that, the way that scene kind of unfolded. It's very crisp and smart. And, and So I'd like you to just talk about uh, blocking that scene in terms of, uh, you know, setting it up for an, an action scene for us so that we can kind of see it unfold and also talk about developing kind of the backstory for that because there's so, so much a deep backstory in this book. That's one of the things I think that makes it really rich and resonant. In real life, as well as presumably in fiction, there's people looking for the angles. And uh, there's people who think they're better than the system. There's the people who think they can get away with it. And uh, certainly there have been many stories throughout our history of, of uh, people in our military who've uh, served themselves. Um, so building that up was, uh, if, you, if Raleigh is a guy who sees a lot of angles and has been around a lot of crimes in his life and isn't shy, but never thought of that one, never thought of uh, selling arms to the enemy. So it's, it really catches him off guard, and he finds himself boxed into a situation that he's never seen before. So I think writing it uh, was just about um, keeping Raleigh's point of view and, and not letting him slip into a situation where Oh, he was used to that. And and that makes it tense because he does not know what's going to happen. Now, the way this book is plotted is very interesting because we kind of have these dueling timelines. We're learning about Raleigh's past while he's learning about a different part of his past. And I, I really like this kind of uh, the way you use uh, first-person revelation as a means of a plot and establishing tension. Uh, going back and forth, how much of this flowed off the tip of your pen and how much of it came out, had to be, I guess, maybe plotted out on a, on a spreadsheet or on a you know, timeline? When you write screenplays, very much they're plotted out. You have to plan. You have to fit the pieces of the puzzle. And a screenplay you know, is, is like a sonnet in its way. It must be this long. You know, this must be the pattern. You can vary it a little, but that's how it has to be. And I spend a lot of time when I write screenplays doing that. But when I started to write the book, I found that wasn't working, that I would do that and uh, oh, a lot of thinking and a lot of long walks and thinking how, about how it was going to be. And at the end of the week, I'd written a page. And it... it it was hard for me because I, I found out I had to sit down and move my fingers <laughs> and just see what this guy had to say. So I think uh, I'm not smart enough to have plotted it all out that way. I just had to do it and hope for the best and then, of course, rewrite it a thousand times. Now, this is a very interesting book about 
this, the father and son relationship here is really great. And you talked a little bit about parent and adult child relationships. And I think that, that I really love that you explored that in this book because that's something that does not get explored a lot. And I think that this is a, a, a very interesting way to distill it down. I Talk about using genre fiction, this kind of mystery fiction, to externalize, to to that and so that it allows you to really get those kind of the nuts and bolts of the emotions out in the open in the form of crimes in the form of actions well i i uh i, I approach it from two different sides one is i'm not sure yet i'm a new novelist if i'm capable of writing a novel that doesn't have a strong plot and a strong macguffin MacGuffin, you know, is the screenplay term for the, the thing, the object that, or the, that the quest seems to be about, but it isn't really about that. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, the father-son thing was very much on my mind, and, and uh, I needed something to, to keep it going, to set it around so that the action would be strong and, and it would keep moving. And then the other way is... Uh, I have no interest in, oh, I don't know my father. Oh, we spend some time together, and now I know him. Uh, those are nice stories for certain people, but they're not nice stories for me. And I, I, I dreaded the idea of uh, getting stuck with something like that. I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll never finish. For me, it was very much about uh, the continued quest each of them to understand the other and never quite getting there. And as you tell yourself the stories and and rethink the moments and not only what was he doing, but what do I learn about the world from that? That interested me. Uh, I love the, the sense, too, of people how uh raleigh has to essentially impersonate himself (laughs) and this kind of the way you play with identity in this book i think is really fascinating there are so many great uh kind of uh lines there's a great line in here where uh, raleigh at one point thinks patience was a trap (laughs) and i thought well there's a truth that uh, needs to be said again um raleigh uh is very independent person. He learned this uh, living with Dan and not living with Dan. When you get sent to foster homes, the last thing you're going to do, it seems to me, I never went to a foster home, is uh, show any loyalty to anyone or trust them too quickly. So the independence then means you must constantly establish your identity and be willing to have any fake identity at any moment. Who do you want me to be? That's who I'll be if it's going to get me something. And and there's at one point when Raleigh's uh, in Afghanistan and he's he's working undercover. There's another great moment where he's talking to somebody else who's also working on undercover, and, and he and he observes that being someone new was exhausting work. <laughs> and indeed, it is, isn't it? It's. Uh, uh, putting on a new identity uh, is exhausting because you lies are exhausting. 
it's much easier to tell the truth because you know what the story is. But if you have to keep making up the story, you get tired because you have to keep looking out for the, the details and what you said before. Uh, you see this all the time with real liars where you catch them. Sometimes you don't say anything. Anything, oh, he made a mistake. He forgot. Sometimes you say something and they scramble very quickly. And Raleigh is extremely good at this, but he had a lot of experience growing up. Now, uh, I, I really love the... Uh the way that you've got this all, the, the plotting on this is so intricate. It's very, it, it's really uh, fun to read, to, to see all these things unfold. And I have to say that having read a number of these books, that your book uh, had many and consistently surprising turns of events. <laughs> and I, I'm wondering that as a writer, when you're doing things, when you make these decisions as a writer, uh, do you sometimes make a decision, okay, I'm going to do this, and I've, I read something and I go, oh, my God, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> uh, do you sometimes make a decision to do something and then write on and then have to say, oh, my God, this didn't work out, then have to go back and uh, extricate that whole like plot line and then rewrite around it? All the time. All the time. I don't know. Uh, I guess there are writers who go straight through. And uh, I, I wish I were one of them. I'd write four books a year. But I'm not. And uh, as I said before, you have to keep moving your fingers. And sometimes it's just not going in the right direction. So uh, I'll go back and really rethink it and reread it a lot. Make sure it's the story I want to tell. That it's, it feels right to me. And uh, characters get thrown out. All sorts of movies. There was a there's a spot in the book where uh, I had Raleigh in the hospital, and then an elaborate escape. I wrote for him to escape the hospital and get away from the Marines, and and uh, and then one day I just said, you know, I don't like him sitting in that hospital bed, and there's no reason for it, and it seemed a waste of time. It was about thirty pages. Had to go. Well, that's life. <laughs> uh, the other thing I, I think is interesting is you put a lot of uh, care into your characters and you put a lot of care into characters who don't necessarily, <laughs> as it were, uh, have much of a lifespan. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you talk about just creating a characters and, you know, you have to, how much of the the bio of these characters do you know when you create them and how much do then do you go and backfill and then how far forward do you carry them? I mean, it must sometimes kind of uh, uh, just go, oh my God, look what I have to do to this poor guy. Uh, yes, sometimes you realize you've killed the wrong person, <laughs> that, that it would be better to have this person carry on into further, further adventures. For me... I don't uh, write out elaborate bios of the characters. I try to uh, go by uh, the actor's credo, which is, uh, well, the story of uh, the guy comes home and says, honey, I got the part in the play, and, and it's in Hamlet. And she says, well, what's, what's the play about? And he, and he goes, well, it's about a grave digger. And, and he's got that part, so he thinks that's what the play's about. And, and 
so for every character you write, if you take that attitude, that for them, this is their story, and take it from there, you have a shot at at least at making characters who are interesting, and and it feels like there's a bigger life for them. Um, now, without talking too much about it, I'd like you to discuss actually um, the the MacGuffin uh, in terms of creating something that's enough to drive the book not enough to overpower the book and still allow, I think what I love about this book is that the characters are really strong. I mean, we really like Raleigh, we really like Dan. I think that's, you know, it's a very intense book in that manner. So talk about creating a MacGuffin that matters but doesn't overpower. Well, uh, part of that came from uh, being a little sick of uh, movies uh, that are always about the end of the world uh, where the hero must save the world. And I had no interest in that. I don't believe it. Uh, so money always works as something we know. We, you know. It's very easy to believe everyone wants money. And then I like stories where people have a purpose. Uh, their crime has a purpose rather than just the possession of the riches. That They have a plan to go with it. So... Uh, a plan, not a plan to take over the world or end the world or anything like that. That's the stuff of comedy and and bad action movies. Now, uh, I, I'd like you to talk about creating mil military characters. One of the things you have somebody say in here is they talk about romanticizing uh, the military, and you definitely don't do that. <laughs> no, I don't. Um <laughs> People feel, uh, going back, I think, uh, to the Vietnam era, a lot of guilt about the way veterans were treated. And, and everyone wants, no one wants to be Jane Fonda and, and get behind the enemy, enemy anti-aircraft gun. So people, of course, say, well, we support our troops. And, and, and we do. But, uh, I don't think people in the military, oh, they might get misty-eyed or angry about civilians, but they don't love the military. It doesn't necessarily treat them that well. They get low pay and, you know, a lot of mistreatment. So they can say what they want, but people on the outside who don't go in, who are out making millions of dollars, and then start talking about our heroic soldiers are full of it. <laughs> <laughs> when you're uh, writing a story like this in the first person, one of the challenges you have is that the re you can't cut away and show the reader something that the, your character doesn't know. The only thing you can tell the reader is what the character knows. And sometimes the character... Or by omission, what the character is not thinking, for example, about Raleigh's past. He's not concerned about his past, so he kind of reveals that to us in, in dribs and drabs. So as a, as a writer, that gives you some challenges in terms of the plot to create the tension. You want to make sure that 
Raleigh doesn't look stupid, you know, but you want to keep the readers guessing. So talk about striking that balance as working in the first person because that's got to be completely different from writing a screenplay. I mean, you're, you're kind of, you're God in the screenplay. Exactly. Uh, it was a big change. It helped and it hurt. On the one hand, it helped because I could really let loose on who Raleigh is. I could, I could go into it from you know, his voice, his point of view, and I wanted that. I, you know, all s- good stories are always about people. They're never about plot. Uh, they're never about anything other than people. So, uh, but creating the tension was uh, uh, something I had to work on. And again, if the, the bad guys, the adversaries, the, the partners, the senior officers, if you really work hard at making them into real people, people who, who uh, think every moment the story is about them, then the tension exists between them and Raleigh uh, rather than the speeding train that we're cutting to and, and the girl tied to the tracks. Now, I really enjoy uh, Raleigh's uh, monologues. I mean, his, his voice, I, it's, you can just read about him. So read from his point of view, and it's really uh, pleasurable. And uh, keeping that consistent through the book, it, when his main job is to change identity consistently, and he's a very chameleonic figure, talk about trying to keep somebody who's a chameleon find the through line within, yet allowing them to weave in and out of their the characters they create for themselves. Ah. Part of Raleigh's persona is that uh, he's always going to give you a front that isn't his real self. So he's a very skeptical person. And uh, that's a big part of his voice. Well, therefore, his fronts, the people he impersonates, uh, tend to be, they pretend to be more open and upfront. That's the simple version of it. Uh, Raleigh's more than just skeptical, but it's easy for him to, to hide himself uh, when he's impersonating someone. It's for his safety, and it's based on his experience. As a writer, you're creating a, a, a very odd family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd like you to just talk about uh, creating this weird family dynamic with Raleigh and his father, and his mothers, as it were, <laughs> to a certain degree. Uh, talk about uh, creating this and exploring that um, in terms of both the plot and the plot arc, you, what's happening with the MacGuffin and, and, and the military, but also in the emotional arc of the characters because there's you know a nice emotional arc for Raleigh here as well. That's to a degree more important than uh, what happens with regards to the crime and fiction aspects. Well, I started out, I, the first scene I wrote for this, before it was 
I knew it was gonna. I was gonna finish the novel. Was uh, Raleigh walks into a bar, and there's his father, and he's oh damn it. There's, I wasn't looking forward to seeing him here. I hasn't seen him in years, and his father sees him. Raleigh has no choice. He has to sit down. They sit down and talk. All of a sudden, people come in from every direction, knock them out, grab them, take them away. Raleigh wakes up in a jail. And I thought, this is what happens to kids. This is how life is for kids. You don't know what your parents have going on, and all of a sudden, it affects your life. And you've got to take it from there. Uh, I thought that... uh, then, I, obviously, I threw that out, though I do refer to it. Um, and that Dan would have a gift and be a, an ironic gift, I won't say what it is, that would send Raleigh reeling and, and careening into his past. Um, so that took care of the plot right away. Once I knew Dan was that kind of guy, and uh, it, one thing followed from the other. Now, uh, when you're writing uh, a novel, a crime fiction novel, there are certain kind of tropes and things you, that you that you kind of need to address, and you do a good job of, of transforming that through this kind of uh, military aspect uh, that you bring to the novel. So I'd like you to talk about um, using the stuff of uh, military fiction and combining it with the stuff of crime fiction. I'm not an expert at this, uh, and I have no military background. Um, The people who've gone to war, these long wars that we've been fighting, that interested me. And uh, it seemed to me it was a good situation. It seemed to me that uh, once I had who Raleigh was, that the military was the right place for him. You know, he might have joined a gang, but he chose this instead. And he says that. He said the military basically was a better deal than the gang offered. They, they offered, you know, three squares and the weapons. You didn't have to go out and steal the weapons. So uh, from there, I uh, wanted to write my affection in, in this kind of fiction is for spy fiction. I'm a Len Dayton fan and John le Carré fan, and I like crime fiction, uh, Jim Thompson-style stuff. So I was heading in that direction. That's perfect. Yeah, it's a perfect triangulation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jim Thompson and, and mm-hmm. Len Dayton. <laughs> right, right. I'd say those those are two very Len Dayton in particular was very much uh, on my mind before I started writing. I had seen the movie The Ipcris File at least twenty five times. I have it memorized, <laughs> and I had never read the book. Mm. So I read it. And I read Funeral in Berlin and saw that movie again as well. And uh, it really helped me understand uh, what he'd done and and how he'd shaped his stories. Helped me a lot. Now, uh, with regards to 
um, the kind of the the spy fiction aspects of this, I think that that really comes out well in in all this kind of shifting identity stuff. And I really one of the things I think is so interesting. At one point, uh, Raleigh thinks, "Is spying a choice or is it nature? Both for me, a relief, a cloak, a release." I love spy stories. To me, all good stories are spy stories. Every Graham Greene story is a spy story. Every Somerset Maugham story is a spy story. I love spy stories because people are lying to each other and not so much the verbal lies, but what they're holding back all the time. How can a love story be anything but a spy story? And uh, uh, so... uh, for Raleigh to realize that finally, that was a, a, a big moment that I wanted to get to in the book. It was He'd been a soldier, he'd been a Marine, and, it, and he was good at it. He had a lot of ability, and, and he, he understood people, he understood the people he was working with, and he was not afraid. He was afraid the way everyone is, but he was able. But to suddenly be thrust into this other role without any training, I wanted a, a spy who didn't go to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. I wanted a spy from the street there's, because there's a lot to be learned that way. And uh, when he realized that, I think that for him was a big moment. Could you talk a little bit about when you're developing something like this, were you thinking that I'm going to write a lot of books about this character? You know, after all these years writing a novel, you have no idea if you're going to sell it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when I knew I had this character, I knew to write him in a screenplay, if you sell the screenplay, you've lost the character. Mm. The odds are low that they're going to make the movie. And the character's dead. 20, 30 people have read the screenplay. Maybe, and that's it. They own him. You can't use them. So uh, I said, well, gee, if I write them in a novel and someone buys the novel, I can, I can do 10 of these. I like this guy. This guy's got a lot of potential. So that was, yes, that was very much on my mind. Is the, are, how far are you into the next book? I finished the first draft. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> As you were architecting this book and setting up for the second book, how much of that went in to inform the plot and the characterization of this book? No, n- not enough. <laughs> um, I, I did not know that, that uh, there'd be a sequel, for sure. And I said, just write the best book you can write, and, and then we'll see what happens. If Again, it's all about the people much more than the plot. So I figured I can always fix the plot if, if I've got this guy and his father. And... Uh, uh, so when I started the second book, I had some adjusting to do to, to make it fit. Uh, I hope I've succeeded. But, uh, when you're dealing with uh, books like in a, in a sequence like this, talk about just um, some of the, the time sequencing and the plotting, moving back and forth, because you can go both ways. And how much stuff did you want to fill in from, you know, the more more backstory, more forestory? You're talking about for the second book? Yeah. Uh, 
more forestory, less backstory in the second book. There's still plenty, mm-hmm. uh, but he's taken away from his old stomping grounds and Dan's old stomping grounds in the second adventure. So he's not running into people he knew when he was young. He doesn't get to go see Loretta. Up, well, he does. I won't say. Um, but she was a favorite character of mine. Chewy, who owns the diner. He's not going to see him. He's not getting into that stuff as much. So, but there are other characters uh, who come in, and, and uh, his past is very, very much a part of book two. Um, but it's, it's got a slightly different structure, and I, I didn't try to force the issue. I tried to just tell the story the way it was supposed to, I thought it was supposed to be. Well, we'll look forward to hearing more of your stories. I've been speaking with David Rich. His new novel is Caravan of Thieves. Thank you for joining me, David. Thanks. I loved it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.